Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Women in the Word. It is a blessing for me to be here today with all of you and continue this study in numbers. And we've actually gotten to a part of numbers today that actually has a lot of numbers. <laughs> Lots of numbers. The first two chapters are filled with numbers from a census, and the end is filled with the number of animals they sacrificed. Numbers after numbers. You know, just like in the first chapter, we had all those numbers in the census, the second chapter, in the chapters in 26 and 27, we're actually going to see how some of those numbers are going to be used. They're going to be used to reorganize the Israel's army, and it's going to be used as they get into the promised land and begin to divide up that land. Now, the transition from 25 to 26 was very similar to one we had before. It was back in between Numbers 14 and 15. And back there we saw that the Israelites had been rebelling again. And God said, that's it. That's it. I I'm going to pardon you. But all of you who have witnessed all my miracles, all my glory back in Egypt and out in the wilderness, and you still want to test me and despise me, you will not be going into the promised land. It's not going to happen. And at the end of that chapter, we read that the Israelites go into battle with uh, their enemies without God. Never a good place to be. They didn't even go into battle with Moses behind them. And they were badly defeated. Badly defeated. And God had punished the Israelites, but in Numbers 15, he shows his mercy and he starts to tell them how they can rebuild their relationship with him. And he starts to teach them about the sacrifices and the offerings he wants them to do for him. Now, this scenario is seen again between 25 and 26. Remember last week, Lynn was here, and we talked about um, how all those Israelites were killed in, a, uh, in, in um, 24,000 because they were worshiping Baal. And they were chasing after Moabite women. Specifically, he punished them by sending this plague, and it wiped out 24,000 Israelites. Then we see 26 open, and as it opens up, he begins to prepare this next generation. He's showing his mercy on Israel, saying, I'm going to prepare your next generation to take over the promised land. See, the generation that wandered in the wilderness for several decades would not be entering, but what they'd accomplished in that wilderness had laid a really strong foundation for the generation that will be entering the land with the into the promised land. You know, I read a Chinese proverb when I was preparing for this, and it reminded me of this situation. It said, one generation plants the tree, another gets the shade. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. See, the Israelites had started this journey about four decades before, but not only did they wander around out in the wilderness grumbling, complaining, rebelling, being disobedient, they actually accomplished some things under Moses' leadership. See, they were given God's laws and they implemented it. They implemented it into their daily lives. They gathered all the supplies that were needed to build the tabernacle, and, and they followed God's instructions to the T as they built that tabernacle. They organized two million plus people into an orderly camp, and they assigned leaders at each place and each tribe to handle their civil disputes and their spiritual needs. They followed God's instructions for proper offerings, feasts, sacrifices, and they even followed the purification laws that he had set up for them. And then they even sent spies into the promised land 
to see what they had up ahead of them. Now, depending on how you spin that, you say, Vanita, that didn't turn out so well. But guess what? Yeah, 10 of those guys, if you put a positive spin, 10 of those guys did come back and they said, they're too big, we're gonna be crushed like bugs. But two guys, two guys, one of which was gonna be their future leader. Israel got to see Joshua trusting God with their battles. That was a blessing for them. You know, the generation of Israelites not entering the Promised Land, either because of their efforts or in some cases in spite of their efforts, had planted trees whose shade they were never going to set in. You know, as I was thinking about this lesson, I started thinking about the things we ponder, uh, Cameron and I pondered when we were preparing the Jones kids, the next generation of Joneses, to go off into the world. We've been empty nesters about three years now, which doesn't even seem possible. But it's been in the last couple of years I started thinking, wow, I really forgot to teach them a few things. How did I forget that? You know, one of those areas, some of them I think I may have actually taught them, but I didn't do a very good job at it. Or possibly they weren't listening very well when I was instructing. That's very possible. But one of those areas is the area of laundry. I did not teach them how to do their laundry like that. They just throw everything in all together, pour stuff in and go. It's terrifying to me. And my sons, my two sons, now they couldn't be more opposite than day or night, but they're both very bright men in their own right. They, to this very day, claim I never taught them how to do laundry. And they'll drag bags of laundry back to the house every time they come home to visit and just leave it in the laundry room till I get it done for them. And you know, there's another area that Cameron and I have worked on and we don't feel like we've been very successful is how to teach them not to spend every single penny in their account. At least within the first 48 hours. <laughs> they, they're amazing at this. You know, our older two kids, I think you learned that school of hard knocks, I, I kind of think. But and our older two kids have actually gotten it and we feel like they're off the payroll. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the younger two, we're still working on it. It's getting there, but we're still, we're still not quite there. It's really funny. If you look at their accounts online, which I do frequently, I just did it the other day. Casey had $1.13 in his account. <laughs> it's remarkable. It's, re but it's kind of funny, but you know what's even more remarkable? Is when you look at the last transaction they made, it was $1.15. <laughs> How do you do that? I mean, that's really not easy math at all. I mean, how do you, I, mean I don't even know if there's anything that costs $1.15. It's like they become these little math wizards when they swipe their debit cards. How do you know that you're going to just have like $1.13 left when you're finished? I wish they'd use those math skills in their math classes. We definitely have better grades there. And there are several other things along the way that we thought, man, we should have thought about when we were preparing the next generation of Jones kids. See, that's important to God, too, preparing the next generation. Oops. It should be important to us as well. These, next, these chapters that we read this week, these four chapters, that's exactly what God is doing. He's preparing the next generation of Christian, uh, next generation of, of Israelites who are going to move into the promised land. Now, if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Numbers 26 and follow along. I'm going to read just the first couple of verses. 
It says, after the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So he opens up, and most of the older generation now has died off, except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, and Moses is about to die. It's going to happen soon. This new generation that's about to take over the land, this, they're going to take over this land that their grandparents and parents have been talking about their entire lives. But just like their parents and their grandparents did when they left Egypt all those years ago, these guys are going to be coming into some new struggles, some new battles, because they're entering brand new territory. And God, of course, knows this. He knows that, so he's going to cover these four areas to prepare for this next generation. Now, next week, his prep work is going to continue as he goes on to the end of Numbers. But he starts his prep work by taking a census, and he wants to know where they stand before they begin to move forward on their, in their future. He wants this next generation of leaders to know how many they've got to work with, how many warriors. He's preparing them to face their battles. So he's preparing them as they have these upcoming battles he knows are on the horizon. You know, just like God commanded Moses in the first chapter of Numbers, he's instructing Moses to take account of all the military-aged men. Now, they're to be 20 years older and up, or 20 years old and up, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through that census. I hope you glanced over it maybe compared numbers, it was kind of interesting to me. But if we skip ahead to verse 51, and we look at where that census was completed, look at the numbers that we had, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among these, the land, oh wait, am I in the right one? This was a list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Now, look back on your verse sheet, numbers, uh, numbers one, 45 through 46. It says, so all those listed, this was the first census, of the people of Israel by their father's house from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Was that shocking to any of you? I thought that number was shocking. I expected it to be much smaller than that. Much smaller. Because look back on your verse sheet at Numbers 14, 26 through 29. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who had grumbled against me, not one coming into, will come into the land where I swore that I would make would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. And the numbers were very, very close. In fact, they were just a short of, they were short like 1,820 men. I mean, I, I was shocked by this. You know, if you think back over these 25 chapters we've been studying, they cover roughly four decades of history in the nation of Israel. You'll remember tens of thousands of people that died because of disobedience and rebellion. For example, do you remember the Israelites and the quail fiasco? Back in Numbers 11. And then there was Korah's rebellion when the ground split open and it just took in entire households. Who knows how many people died in that? 
And then those that we talked about last week were 24,000 killed because they were worshiping Baal. Now, I'm sure there were also many men killed in battle. That just had to go without saying almost. It had to have happened. Not to mention the countless number of people that died from things like old age, disease, accidents, and, and who knows what. Let's be honest, it had been a rough four decades. I would imagine there were hundreds of thousands of bodies buried between Egypt and the Promised Land. But God had a plan. And it was a plan that was not going to be thwarted even by the many years that his disobedient and rebellious people wandered in the wilderness. Nothing was going to stop it. See, it wasn't what I would have expected to see, this picture of this defeated, road-weary nation that just came up to the edge of the promised land and just fell in, completely out of gas. That's what I would have expected to see, but rather it wasn't. It was this nation that in spite of all that had transpired in the wilderness, their God, out of his great love and mercy, had blessed them and kept their numbers steady. That should amaze all of us. See, he provided what they would need for the battles they would be facing in the coming years. He'd given them the younger generation by making them prosperous and fruitful, exactly what they would need to face those battles, to be battle ready. Just like he had done for them way back in Egypt when he made them prosperous and fruitful when they were enslaved. They grew in numbers there, too. You know, reading this little verse in Numbers 51, it gives me such great hope. See, because as much as I want to stand here and say, oh, those Israelites, they're so rebellious and disobedient. You know, I'm reminded of all the times I'm disobedient and I'm rebellious and all the times that God has picked me back up, he's forgiven me, He's brushed me off and he's pointed me right back towards the promised land. Not only that, but he gives me exactly what I need to fight all the battles I'm going to come up against. Not I might come up against, all the battles I will encounter. Because we will encounter them. God has taken a census and all of, if you're in Christ, you're in that census. And he's given each one of us everything we need to stand firm against the enemy. Look at your verse sheet of this very famous a portion of scripture is from Ephesians 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the love of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done, done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all flames, dar flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying all the time in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, God tells us you're going to have battles. They may not look like what they fought in, in Israel, but we're going to have battles. But he's equipped us with everything we need for those battles. And if you notice when you read these, through these verses, he doesn't just give us 
what we need, but he expects us to act on it. All those action words in there, like stand firm, take up, put on, keep alert. We're expected to step up and use what he's given us. See, he gives us everything we need for these future battles, but it's our job to be prepared for those battles. We have to use everything in our arsenal as we prepare. You know, God could have easily just sent his breath over the Canaanites and over the enemies of the Israelites and just wiped them out. Been so easy. It'd been so easy for him to do. In fact, he could have used his angels and just his own power to just move those two million people to the promised land in a blink of an eye. He could have done it. For him, it would have been a lot less complicated, a lot less messy. But guess what? He chose to work with that motley crew of people, his people. And he worked through them and taught them so much as they journeyed to the, to the promised land. Our long-suffering and extremely patient Heavenly Father works through us today too. And we should count it a great honor to work for him and work with him. You know, the next area that God addresses in preparing this next generation of Israelites is how they're going to manage their inheritance. You know, the Israelites had not yet entered the promised land, but Moses is already preparing them to claim this land. And he wants them to do it in an orderly fashion. Without this, can you imagine what this would have looked like? I would equate it to something like maybe the great land rush of the 1800s. Just kind of the wild west. Everybody going in, taking the best that they could get for their families. But Moses sets up this plan for them. And it's listed in Numbers 26, 52. So I'm going to start reading uh, through 56, starting at 52. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its lists. But the land shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit. For their inheritance shall be divided according to a lot between larger and smaller. So that census they took had a second purpose, and that was it's going to be used to uh, divide up the land fairly among the tribes when they get into the promised land. So once they would enter there, Joshua, Eleazar, and the tribal representatives would uh, divide the land according to the size of their tribe, and then where their land would be located would be determined by casting a lot. And that it was just left up to God. He would, he would take them where he wanted them. The next area addressed in this chapter is the Levitical inheritance, and that's in verses 57 through 61, and that's where you get the account of it. We're just going to read uh, verse 62 to get the uh, results of that. It says, And those listed were 23,000, every male from one month old and upward, for they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. See, the census taken of the Levites were from males only one month old and up. It was different than the other one. And it revealed there were 22,000 and uh, in the first one. Or in the first one, it revealed 22,000. The second one was 23, so they had a net gain, which is pretty remarkable as well. And they were not going to be given land, though. And we studied this a while back. It was, they were rather going to be scattered throughout the nation of Israel and placed in cities. And there were some reasons for this. Uh, first of all, it fulfilled Jacob's deathbed prophecy. 
You can read that back in Genesis 49. But it also, by scattering them all over the nation of Israel and placing them in cities, would give them a better opportunity to teach all of the Israelites God's laws. It, they'd be more immersed into, the, into everybody's lives. It'd be easier to get to them. And then thirdly, God was their inheritance. That's why they weren't going to get any land. God was their inheritance. He was their portion. They were to completely devote themselves to him and live by faith, trusting that God was going to provide for all their needs. Now, of course, with almost any assignment of inheritance, there was a little complication that arose. And uh, I would imagine with two million people, this is probably the only one recorded. There were probably more. But this incident go is, it rose, that arose, it's recorded in Numbers 27. Look at um, Numbers 27, starting at verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, I had someone tell me I should call her Zelo. <laughs> I agree. I agree, I think it's a great name. And the son, and he was a, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mechar, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joshua, uh, Joseph. The names of his daughters were remarkably interesting. Mala, Noah, Hagla, how's that one? Milcah and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs of all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died of his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he has no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers." Moses brought his case to the Lord, or their case to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelo are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Okay, so what we saw happening here is we had uh, these daughters, daughters of Zelophehad, and he had five of them with very interesting names. And they reported that their father had died before the inheritance would be handed out. Now, they were very quick, I thought was interesting to point out, he didn't die in that core rebellion. That must have quite a stigma. Because they wanted him to know that right away. But he did die of his own sin, they said. And this guy had no sons, only daughters. And because of that, they were worried that their father's name was going to disappear. And that he, they also feared that there would be no land for his family. And specifically for them, because they had no brothers. So Moses, when presented with this difficult situation, this problem, he did what he's always done. He took it straight to God, and, and he sought wisdom from God in how to handle this complicated inheritance. And then the Lord did what he's always done for Moses. When Moses came to him, he proceeded to give him guidance in how to handle this, handle this matter. In fact, he instructed Moses to give the land to the daughters... And to do that, if there are no sons, he said, if there are no sons or daughters, then to give it to the brothers. And if there are no brothers, he's to give it to the nearest kinsman. Now, this became a legal precedent, and you're actually going to see this later on in Numbers. It's going to be revisited, and it's going to address the daughters that actually got some of this inheritance through this, but then they married into another tribe. So it even gets a little bit stickier, but... Um, he addresses that as well. Now, not all of us have an inheritance that includes a large parcel of land or a large amount of money or lots of possessions. But if you're in Christ, you have an even more amazing inheritance. 
It's a spiritual inheritance. Look at what Ephesians 1 says on your verse sheet. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance, and it's, and it's through Christ. And it's imperishable. It's never going to be corruption, never be corrupted. It will never decay like an earthly, like some kind of earthly inheritances can. See, our inheritance in Christ is, is never going to fade. It's never going to depreciate like an earthly inheritance can do. It's reserved for us. It has our name on it, and it's being held for us. It's an inheritance that we got from Christ. And it's given to us by grace. And no matter what we do or how hard we work at it, we can't earn it on our own. We can't earn this at all on our own. See, it's even though our inheritance can't be earned by our good works, our, our undeserved inheritance that we get should get, cause us to live completely different than the rest of the world. It should cause us to live in a way that gives glory to God when we serve him out of a heart that is completely overflowing with gratitude for what's been done for us, for that amazing inheritance we have. God gave the Israelites detailed instructions on how to properly handle their inheritance in the promised land. And he clearly gives us detailed instructions as well, how to handle our instructions. It's all right there in the book you have in your lap. And because, and because of Christ's work on the cross, you have this American amazing spiritual inheritance. And we have to manage our inheritance with as great a care as the Israelites did when they moved into the promised land. We should claim our inheritance. We should walk in obedience as we serve God out of gratitude for our inheritance. And we should live with great hope, knowing that we have this inheritance that's being reserved for us ahead, ahead of us. You know, the next thing on the list for Moses as he made preparations to leave this world was appointing a qualified leader. Um, follow along. I'm going to read about this in Numbers 27, starting at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into the mountains of Abram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. That's code for your... You're not going to live much longer. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom the Spirit is the spirit and lay your hand on him make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight you shall invest him with some of the authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey and he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord at his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him the whole congregation and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and he made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him, commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. See, this portion of Numbers kind of makes me a little bit sad. Did it you? It's just sad to me. But it also gave me great hope also. 
I was sad, though, because I acquired this new appreciation for Moses over the last several weeks. It almost reminds me of last time I read an amazing set of books. It's a trilogy, and I fell in love with the characters in that book. And when I got to the end of it, I didn't want to go any further because I didn't want to lose those people. And I thought if I continued to read, I was going to lose that, those people and I just read about those characters. And I didn't want to do that. That's how I feel about Moses. I have fallen in love with this guy. He was a humble man called by God. And for the most part, he always felt terribly inadequate at his job. He dealt with this crazy group, two million people, in some really harsh conditions. But he always knew exactly, exactly where to take his troubles. He took them straight to his heavenly father. And when his life was near the end, he wasn't even concerned about how it was going to come to pass. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't even ask, beg for more time. I just want to be here to see what happens with what I started. He just simply asked the Lord to find someone to take his place. Someone qualified to shepherd the Israelites. Someone that had God's stamp of approval. Specifically, it says that he implored the God of the spirit of all flesh. Now, this is only, this is an unusual title for God. It's only used twice in the Bible, here and back in Numbers 16, but it refers to God's omniscient, his omniscient understanding of every person. And Moses knew this, and that's why he used that title, because he knew that having understanding of every single person ever born or would be born, he would understand exactly who needed to be chosen as the leader. Now, Moses would have been about 120 years old, but apparently still very strong, strong enough to climb a mountain to meet with the Lord. I know last summer when I hiked, I, I couldn't have done it. He's 120. I'm roughly half his age. And he went up on this mountain and he met with God. And so we can assume he's very, still quite strong. He'd been doing this for 40 years with these people. He had shared in their burdens. He'd shared in their victories. He had, he had taught them God's laws. He had guided them how to build the place where God could dwell with them in the, desert, in the, in the uh, wilderness. And, but he was not going to be crossing in to the promised land. He was not going to be crossing the Jordan into the promised land. I know it seems really harsh. I felt the same way. It was really remarkable to me that he would not be going into that land I just had to fall back on the the truth that God's ways are not our ways. Look at Isaiah 55, 8 on your verse sheet. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. I think Moses by now completely understood this, this truth. And he trusted God as he stood on that mountain. He's looking out at the promised land. And when he's facing his impending death, he showed more concern for the people of Israel than he did for himself. Now, I thought it was interesting. He didn't even go on to say, hey, I know a guy. He's a great guy. I've been with him for many years. His name's Joshua. I think he's well qualified. You ought to look at that guy. He didn't do any of that. That's what I would have done. He didn't suggest Joshua. He didn't suggest anybody. He just relied on God to appoint the leader that he knew, that God knew Israel needed at that moment. And God commanded Moses to appoint Joshua as the next leader, as the nation of Israel. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, he had an amazing resume, amazing resume. It started way back in Egypt when, when he was enslaved, and it goes all the way to when he became this vicious warrior, this victorious warrior that led the nation of Israel into the promised land. The first time we see him mentioned in the Bible is when these mighty soldiers, for the Malachites, are, they're in what's now southern Israel, and they start marching south because the, uh, the Hebrew army is marching north, and they want to cut them off. And it's a very famous battle. You remember when Moses, God told him to hold his staff up, and, and the Hebrew army was able to make advances as long as his arm was in the air with that staff? And it was Aaron that helped him support it, but it was Joshua, Joshua that fought the battle. He fought and won that battle with the help of the Lord. Joshua was also with Moses when he climbed Mount Sinai and God gave uh, Moses the law. And when the Israelites got to the edge, the southern border of Canaan, Joshua was among those 12 spies that I mentioned. Ten of them came back and said, don't do it. They're big. They're well fortified. Not Joshua. Joshua said, let's go forward and trust God. Let's got God handle this battle. I know he's going to be victorious over our enemies. And because of his faith, Joshua and Caleb, along with him, would be entering the promised land unlike any of the rest of his generation. God knew that Joshua would be the exact kind of leader that would be needed when they entered the promised land because he knew how big those armies were. He knew how fortified they were. And he knew that Joshua was the man for the job. Just like he knew back at the very start, when he was beginning to lead the, the Israelites out of Egypt, he needed a man like Moses. He needed a man who was humble, who was obedient, extremely obedient, extremely faithful, one that followed all of God's commands, and, and one that had a heart for God's chosen people. He was the man for the job back then, Joshua the man for the job now. And God, in his infinite wisdom, he knew that. So just as the Lord had commanded him, Moses commissioned Joshua in front of the whole congregation to show that he had God's stamp of approval. This is who I've chosen. And if you look ahead to Deuteronomy, we find Moses' commissioning speech. I put a little bit of it on your verse sheet. Look at Deuteronomy 31 on your verse sheet. It says, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. you will not, he will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua went on to be an amazing leader for Israel. And, and under their, his leadership, they did go into the, the promised land. They conquered their enemies. And they took, took control of that land and they established the nation of Israel. And just as Moses had a responsibility to train up and equip a leader for Israel, we have a responsibility too. We have a responsibility to equip that next generation of Christian leaders. See, during his service under Moses, Joshua learned some very valuable lessons, both spiritual lessons and, I would say, also valuable lessons in serving in the kingdom of God. There are values and principles that actually apply to us today, things that we should look at and, and be practicing in our own lives. But you know what? There are things we should be teaching the next generation of Christians coming up behind us. See, whether we're in a prominent leadership role or not, we're all leading someone somewhere. It doesn't matter if you're in your home or with lots of little kids or in your place of work or in your ministry or anywhere else you found it, whether you're even just standing in the front of the line at the grocery store. 
See, whether you know it or not, someone's watching you. Someone's watching and they're learning from all your words and all your actions. And from what we already know about Joshua and what we learned when we read the book of Joshua, we know that under his leadership, he learned well. It was either through Moses or in spite of Moses, but he was well-trained. Joshua learned to trust God in all his battles. Is that what your life is teaching the others around you? Or are you showing others, are you showing others that you trust God with your battles, or are you showing them that you're anxious? You're fearful, you're worried, you're fretting about your future. And under the leadership of Moses, Joshua also learned to be quick to give God the glory for his victories. Are you quick to do the same? And all your victories, your little ones, your big ones, your middle ones, all the things that happen in your life, are you, are you the first to give him the glory for it? Or do you kind of revel in your victories? Look what I did, this is awesome. Forgetting completely about the one that helps you get that victory at all. You know, Joshua learned by watching Moses to put the welfare of the others before his own welfare. Do you place as much value on other people as you do on meeting your own wants and needs? What is more important to you? Have you ever asked God to show you the needs around you and then tell him, I want to step in and help? Because guess what? If you do, he will. He will give you his eyes for a minute, and he'll show you exactly what he needs. And finally, under the leadership of Moses, Joshua learned to obey God's commands. Not just those he chose to follow, not the easy ones, not the ones that fit well into his schedule, but all of them. Do those around you looking into your life see you picking and choosing the commands of God that kind of fit well into your life and they're kind of easy to do? Or are you actually making the hard choices? Are you, are you showing others that you're making the hard choice that, to follow God's laws? All of them. Even the ones that aren't easy for you to do. But are you letting them know that you're following them to the help of your Heavenly Father every day in your life? See, whether you purposely are teaching the next generation or not, the next generation is watching you. And they're watching you as you're on your journey to the promised land. What is our life teaching them? It's a question we should ask ourselves every day. God goes on into the next area that he wants to address, and it's the next generation he wants them to know about worship. It's important to them. Starting in verse 1 of Numbers 28 and going all the way to the end of Numbers 29, God is giving Moses strict instructions for worship. Now, he gave him, God gave Moses instructions for worship for daily Weekly, monthly, yearly sacrifices, offerings, feasts, all of that. And it all starts in Numbers 28. I am not going to read all of these. I'm just going to read the first few verses here. So follow along as I start at verse 1 of 28. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel, saying to them, My offering, my food, my food for my food offerings, and my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And all of these, he goes on, have an appointed time. And he goes on to instruct them how and when to do all this. Now, I'm not sure if any of you read all this. I hope you at least glanced over it and took account of what was going on. I bet you noticed the theme. There are a lot of animals that died. A whole lot. They sacrificed a number of animals with every single time they were supposed to be doing an offering or coming before the Lord. For the Old Testament believer, the sacrifices they made, these animals and these food, this food was their form of worship. 
That's what God had set up for them. Their animal and food sacrifices meant for them that what they were giving was far less worthy of the one they were giving it to. And so it was they were worshiping him as they gave it. See, God seeks true worshipers. He delights in the worship of his people. Look, look at John 4.23 on your verse sheet. It says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, quite frankly, we were created to worship our heavenly Father. That's why we're here. Look at Isaiah 43, 20 on your verse sheet. It says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Your purpose here on earth is to bring glory to God and worship him. Now, if you read through these chapters, you probably also noted the, the phrase that was, compl- was repeated over and over. It was like seven, eight times, something like that. And it, was, uh, it, was the ple- it said a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Some of yours may have said it was a fragrant aroma or a sweet aroma. But each sacrifice, even though they had a different purpose to fulfill, they all had one ultimate goal. And that was to please the Lord. Now, although we no longer live under these laws for sacrifices, these offerings and sacrifices have significance for us as Christians today. All of us that are living under the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. For instance, those daily sacrifices, they remind us that we should begin and end every single day by giving ourselves completely to the Lord. The Passover sacrifice, they remind us of the redemptive work that Christ did on the cross for us that rescued us from the slavery of sin. The Feast of Weeks, which occurred 50 days after the the Passover, it's celebrated today, it's called Passover. And this is a day that the Holy Spirit empowered the new believers in the early church. And the Feast of Trumpets, it it occurred on the first day of the seventh month, and announced the beginning of a new civil year for Israel. Now if you remember back in Numbers, um, there were always trumpets being used for something. We talked about how trumpets would be sounded for, like, um, an alarm. They would be uh, sounded to call people together. They were sounded when there was a battle. They were always waiting for the trumpets, waiting to hear what the trumpets would bring. See, as Christ followers today, we're waiting for the trumpets too. Waiting for those trumpets that are going to announce the return of our Savior Jesus. Just like, and, and just like each of these that I read you point us to Christ, all the other ones that were listed in these two chapters do exactly the same thing. That is one of the great lessons we can learn from this expansive list of sacrifices that we can see Christ in every one of these sacrifices, and it points us to Him, and He is the one who has fulfilled every sacrifice. See, the blood of these animals, and it was a large number of animals. I read a commentary that listed the number exactly for one year. It would have been 113 bulls, 32 rams, and 1,086 lambs. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of blood. And yet, all that blood that was shed by those animals could not completely nor permanently wipe away their sin. It couldn't cleanse them from their sin. But the blood of Christ that he shed for us on the cross completely and permanently wipes out our sin. 
Their sacrifices had to be done consistently on a schedule, year after year after year. But our sacrifice, the one made by Christ on the cross, accomplished our salvation once and for all. Now, the second lesson I think we can learn from this is that from these regularly scheduled sacrifices, the Israelites had to go to their high priest to take their sacrifices. The priest represented the Israelites before God as he took their sacrifices to them, to God for them. He acted as a mediator. He kind of filled the gap for them between Israel and God. Today, Christ is our high priest. He's the one that's made that once and for all sacrifice for us, and he lives now to intercede for us at the throne of our heavenly Father. Christ is our high priest. He has become our mediator. And thirdly, we learned that these sacrifices were costly. Those, those are a lot, it's a lot of animals. And not only that, they had to bring a portion of their harvest, the first fruits and all this to, to give as offerings. But none of it was as costly as the sacrifice that Christ made when he paid with his life to save all of us. This truth alone should cause us to just live a life of gratitude as we love and serve Christ in everything we do. You know, from the very beginning of, of God, from the very beginning of God's relationship with the Israelites, God planned for continuous and regular fellowship with His people. That's all He really wanted, and, and He desires that today. That's all He wants from us. He wants to He wants to be with us. He wants us to want to be with Him. I can't tell you how grateful I am that we no longer live under this ancient sacrifice, sacrificial system that they live under. I grew up on a farm, and we only killed two animals a year. And that was way more blood than I even wanted to deal with then. And all these sacrifices, they've been fulfilled by Christ, and we can now enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father anytime we want. See, out of a heart overflowing with gratitude for what Christ has done for us through His sacrifice... We should make worship our highest priority. It should be the most important thing that we do. In fact, it should be a natural thing for us because remember I said we were created to do it. It should be the most natural thing we do. And where the Old Testament believers' sacrifices were dead sacrifices, we, on the other hand, become living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices. Look at Romans 21.1 on your verse sheet. In Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, he says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, just like recorded in Numbers 28 and 29, where it says that the Israelites' worship was to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, our worship should be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know, our sacrifices are no longer the costly animal sacrifices. But our worship today is not also not limited to just singing praises on Sunday morning. It's so much more than that. Worship that is a sweet aroma to the Lord is a life that is totally committed to Him in every single aspect, not just on Sunday. Every day, every single day. Now, how do we do that? Well, of course, we have the book that tells us how to do it. So if we look at Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 on your verse sheet, this would be kind of the cliff notes of how to live a life of worship from the Bible. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we live a life of worship? We imitate God. That's a really tall order. How do we imitate God? 
Well, it tells us in there, it said, we become more and more like Christ. And how do we become more like Christ? We do it when we are filled and led by the Holy Spirit. We become more like Christ when we renew our minds every single day when we spend time reading and meditating on his word. And we become more like Christ when we're constantly in contact with our Heavenly Father through prayer. That's how we imitate God. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that seeks to bring glory to God. And this lifestyle of true worship becomes more evident the more mature we get. And it becomes pleasing to the, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Have you ever noticed um, how when you, when you walk up, have, walked up to somebody and they just smelled amazing? And you just go, what are you wearing? That smells awesome. Have you even noticed that you can go into a room that somebody that wears gray cologne has just left and you'll go, hey, I know who's just been here. Or you know they entered the room before you even see them because their, their fragrance comes in before them. That's what happens in our lives. That's what happens in our lives when we live a life that imitates Christ, a life of worship. We exude this sweet aroma that pleases the Lord and a sweet aroma that, guess what? The world around us starts to take notice of. And I read a quote that said this. It said, the more mature fruit and even some forms of flowers become, the stronger the fragrance becomes. When others encounter true worshipers of God, they may wonder, what is that fragrance? Why do you, what are they wearing? Or better yet, it said, they may desire for themselves the one whose fragrance is being exuded. Christ. Christ himself. See, no matter your age or what generation you belong to, you have a responsibility to prepare the next generation of Christian leaders. When we're united in Christ, the only gap between generations and between your generation and the one right behind you, it's age. That's all it should be. There should be a number. Because when you're united in Christ and we're united in Christ and our love for Christ, that age should disappear. And ladies, we're called to reach to the next generation and pull them in to what God has prepared for them. He has work for them to do just like he had work for you to do. And he wants us to help prepare them for that work he has for them. We have a responsibility to prepare them for their upcoming battles. We have a responsibility to teach them how to care for their spiritual inheritance. We have a responsibility to seek God's wisdom when we appoint leaders and then Use our lives as an example of faithful, godly lives for them to learn from. And we have a responsibility to teach them the importance of worship and how to live a life of worship that brings glory and honor to God. Please pray with me. Father, we, um, we know you've called us to prepare the next generation. And Lord, it's a huge job. Lord, we pray that you would just each day, fill us with your truth so we can do that in a way that honors you and brings glory to you. As we go out of here, Lord, I pray that we take these truths and, and we just begin to put them in our lives everywhere, that people start to see us and hear us, and then our fragrance becomes a sweet aroma to them, Lord, and they're attracted to you through us. Father, we love you. We love your word, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.